Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Witcher Chapter by Chapter Book Review, where I'll go through a summary of what happened in the latest chapter and give my detailed thoughts on it. And today I'm going to be discussing Story 1, The Bounds of Reason, from Book 2, Sword of Destiny. So I am excited that we are starting on the next book in this episode. Uh, not too much else that I have to say about that. I think um, it's going to be a good episode, considering this was a great story. It's a lot of fun if you haven't read it. Um, yeah, it, there's a lot of action in this story. A lot of different things take place. Uh, but yeah, without further ado, I'm not going to linger on anything leading up to that. So I'll start by giving you a recap on the last episode, just in case you need a refresher or you missed it. And then I'll just go right into the summary of today's story. Uh, so for the last episode, we left off with Geralt defeating the Knight of the White Rose Talus in a duel and putting Falwick in his place. Geralt agrees to leave Elendor, which means he and Dandelion must part ways with Mother Neneke. As they're about to head out, Geralt and Iola's hands touch and there is a vision of violence, blood, and death. Neneke pleads with Geralt not to go, but he says there's no point looking over your shoulder. Alright, so here comes the summary of story number one, Bounds of Reason. Sword of Destiny's first story. Oh, you know what? Really quick, before I dive into the summary, I just want to give a little disclosure that this is going to be a long summary because it's a very long story. This story is actually longer than the longest story from The Last Wish. So buckle up. It's going to be a long one. Uh, I did try to minimize the the summary in my notes as much as I could. I left out a lot of the details uh, because I can discuss them after the summary, but it's still, I, 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 I did the best I could in not making it too long, but it's still long. So with that said, uh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> so Sword of Destiny's first story starts out with our hero, Geralt of Rivia, completing a basilisk contract. While battling the basilisk in an underground dungeon, a few of the townsmen debate stealing his horse and equipment. They're stopped by a man who is escorted by two very fearsome warriors. Geralt returns from the dungeon and scorns the townsmen. Before they leave, one of the helpful man's warrior escorts kills one of the men who pulled a weapon on him as he was trying to defend Geralt's possessions. The man introduces himself as Bork, or Three Jackdaws, and his escorts from Zeracania go by the names of Taya and Vea. Borg invites Geralt to join their company in a nearby inn. At the inn, the party of four enjoy a feast and a keg of beer. Borg brings up the topic of dragons, to which Geralt replies that he does not kill dragons. They chat a little further on the topic and end the night with a group bath. The next morning, they set out to travel, but come to a stop at a gate closed to all who do not have a letter of safe conduct. They approach the Decurion to find out more, and they come across Geralt's bard friend, Dandelion, who is also wanting to get past the gate and hoping that someone with a safe conduct would bring him along. Dandelion explains he wants to join a hunting party for a dragon that recently started scaring the nearby town of Bearfield. 
The cobbler of the town tricked the dragon with a sheep carcass stuffed with poisons, and although it harmed the dragon, it did not kill it. Dandelion goes over the group of hunters, starting with the king of Kangorn, Nidamir, and his retinue. A group of reavers, led by a man named Bohol that Geralt is familiar with, who professionally hunt dragons. A group of dragon-hunting dwarves, led by Yarp and Zegrin. And a knight, who often poses a threat to Geralt's livelihood, Ike of Denesle. The troubadour wants to join the party so he can compose a ballad of the tale, and he can get better results as a first-hand witness. As the group discuss the dragon hunt, the Decurion cuts in to say he believes the sorceress who joined the group will be the one to kill the dragon. This piques Geralt's interest, but the guard couldn't remember her name, just the color of her hair, her youthful complexion, and her eyes. While talking, a sorcerer by the name of Dorgoret arrives. They ask the sorcerer if he knows who the sorceress might be, and he asks if she, and he asks if she was riding a black mare. When the Decurion confirms this, he surmises that it must be Yennefer. Upon this reveal, Geralt offers the guard his reward money from killing the basilisk to let them pass. The guard refuses, but when Bork offers more money, he reluctantly accepts. After Geralt and his party catch up with the dragon hunters and they sit around the campfire discussing the division of their payout for the mission, Geralt has his first bitter reunion with Yennefer. She is clearly quite unhappy with the Witcher and has no intention of hiding it. She demands they feign friendship during the hunt, but assures him that there's no longer anything between them. On the road to find the dragon the next day, Geralt is approached by multiple people, including the king's advisor, Gillenstiern, the sorcerer, Dorgray, and Yennefer, all of whom manage to find a way to show him undeserved disrespect. He is next approached by Bork, where they discuss personal goals and callings, right before a rock slide begins and everyone must instantly rush across a bridge somewhere previously unsure could even hold the entire party. Geralt and Yen are rushing across the bridge when it collapses. They manage to hold on, but while holding, they hear a little debate from the group about whether or not they should pull them up, or maybe wait until Yen, who is holding on to Geralt, falls before pulling the Witcher up. The pious knight, Ike of Denesle, throws down a magic elven rope that ties itself around him and pulls the two to safety. Geralt is quite irritated that Ike, the man who hates sorcerers and witchers, was the only one who decided to help, and as he's announcing his decision to depart with the group, the dragon poisoner, Sheepbagger, shouts out that a dragon's near. Everyone rushes to check out the dragon and sees that it's golden, not the same green one that was poisoned in Bearfield. An argument breaks out among the group on what they should do with the dragon. Sheepbagger naturally suggests poison. The Reavers and King Nidamir's men want to kill it and use its body for money. Dorgray demands it be left alone as he doesn't believe in the killing of anyone, be they monster, man, or beast. The argument is interrupted by the dragon who begins communicating telepathically with them that his name is Villain Trettenmirth and that they must leave, but not by the Northern Gorge, and those who do not respect his wish must fight him in a knightly duel. Ike of Denesle volunteers first to joust with Villain Trettenmirth, but loses. Yennefer asks Geralt to kill the dragon so she can take it for herself to pay for a costly procedure to reverse her sterilization, but... Geralt does not agree. Meanwhile, Boholt tells the king and Gillenstern that they're going to kill the dragon and they're not splitting the reward with them. While Gillenstern pleads with the king to make a demand, the king makes known his lack of interest in the cause and he and his whole party return home. 
Upon their departure, Dorgare insists everyone to leave with them, for he will not allow anyone to harm the dragon, and if not, he'll harm them with a spell. Before he gets the chance to do anything, Yennefer throws a spell at him and the Reavers attack the sorcerer. Geralt interferes with the attack and tries defending Dorgare, but Yen uses a spell to paralyze him and the mage, and they get tied up along with Dandelion. Once the three of them are tied up, Yennefer now threatens the Reavers and Dwarves and demands they leave. Yarpin throws a steel ball at her face, and they tie her up near Geralt, Dorgare, and Dandelion, then set off to fight the dragon. Villain Trentonmirth makes quick work of the Reavers and scares off the Dwarves. His safety doesn't last long because Sheepbagger, who recently departed, scared of Yarpin's threat, returns with Bearfield's constabulary, who all begin attacking the dragon. At the risk of getting burnt, Yennefer tells Geralt to use his Igni sign, where he produces fire from his hands to set herself free from the ties, and she, along with the recently arrived Taya and Vea, attack the men who almost successfully took down the dragon. They save villain Trentonmirth, who then eats Sheepbagger, and Geralt, Dandelion, and Dorgare are set free. Out of nowhere, Bork appears, and they realize that he was the Golden Dragon, and recall an ancient ballad that says Golden Dragons can assume any form they wish. Geralt and Yennefer kiss and go together to speak with Bork, or villain Trentonmirth. He explains that he was there because he was summoned by the dragon Poison in Bearfield to help protect her hatchling, and that he assumes the form of man because he finds humans likable. He then turns back into a dragon, and Geralt agrees with Bea's previous statement that he is the most beautiful. So that was a long summary. Like I said, it was going to be. Uh, but that's okay, because it was such a great story. It was worth it. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is uh, it's not really a part of the story that was very integral to the story, but it's something that I feel like ties into a lot of the stuff that we've learned about Geralt and Witcher so far. So apparently it's not an uncommon thing for townspeople to try and steal from Geralt while he's completing a job. I think it's just another example of the lack of respect for witchers in this world. And I say in this world as if there's like in, in the real, in our world, the real world, there are witchers. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? But since Geralt doesn't have a place to safely keep his belongings while on a job, there probably isn't really a solution to this. But the reason I think that it's a common thing is because he says, when he sees them doing it, he says, as usual. So this is something that he is facing in this story, not for the first time. And that really sucks. Uh, but anyway, uh, the next thing I wanted to go into was the character Ike of Denesle, because he's an interesting character. And Note that I said interesting, not likable or anything positive, just interesting. <laughs> he's not likable. I do not like this man. Uh, he's a knight, not a witcher. And although he's not a witcher, he's got a record of killing dragons, manticores, and griffins. Uh, there are probably more than that. That's just not mentioned in the story. And he does this for free. And his purpose for doing this and doing it for free is because he wants to protect the innocent. This is obviously a problem to witchers who already have a hard time making a living. Luckily, we've heard no mention of others like him. I'd be very surprised if there were a lot of other knights out there that were just like Ike of Denesle. So I think that as long as 
he's not around, you're probably safe as a witcher. You don't, you don't really have to worry about him. But I thought that that was really interesting because these witchers have to go through the trial of grasses that we learned about. Um, magic and herbs are used to mutate them, and a lot of them don't even survive, and a lot of them go through a lot of trouble when going through the trial of grasses. It's it's just a very grueling, hard process that kills the majority of the boys that go through it so that they can be monster killers. And there's this man who didn't go through any of that that still kills monsters. I'm sure that the rate of monsters he kills is a lot less than that of a common witcher, but still. So Geralt and Yennefer uh, we last left off with the two of them in the Last Wish short story, and that's how, uh, or that's where we learned how they met. And then in the present day, in the Voice of Reason, in the book The Last Wish, we found out that they currently are not on good terms. So all we know about that is that Geralt ran away from her because he found her too possessive. Yennefer clearly hasn't forgiven him between then and their first reunion in this story. So she is very bitter. She's not nice to him. You can make your own judgment if you think that that's, uh, if she is rightfully angry towards him or maybe she's being a little bit too dramatic. But yeah, she's not happy with Geralt one bit by the time they meet in the story. Um, when they're hanging from the bridge, Geralt asks Yen to forgive him. And she just says flat out, no, never. And later, she asks him to kill the dragon for her and says, oh, I'll, I'll do what you asked me to do when we were hanging there. She agrees to forgive him if he goes and kills the dragon because after Ike of Denesley very quickly fails trying to joust with the dragon, she realizes, oh, an ordinary man can't do this. Uh, like, But a witcher probably could. So if, like, could you do this for me? I'll forgive you if you do it. And Geralt denies her. And he says that it stopped mattering to him. I wanted to point that out because that clearly isn't true. <laughs> he just asked for her forgiveness that very same day. Like not even an hour before, I don't think. We're not given um, too precise too precise of an idea on how much time has gone by. But I don't think it was even an hour. So we just asked, and then that quickly he says it stopped mattering to him. And plus, by the end of the story, they're back together. So I think what was demonstrated here was, was some spite from Geralt towards Yennefer. I think that it might be because her treatment of him up to this point has been very harsh. And like I said, you can judge yourself if you think that her response to him for him leaving her is well-founded or not. But I think that he's finding the way that she's treating him to be a little bit too harsh and he's being spiteful. And Geralt, as we have learned, is not really the type of guy to be a, to be spiteful. I don't think he's the type of person that's going to show spite towards somebody. I think he's used to getting disrespected. I, I know he doesn't like it, but I think that he's so used to it that for the most part, he just shrugs it off. But I think because he cares so much about Yennefer, 
his emotions are more impacted by anything that has to do with her than they are if it's coming from anybody else. So I think that this is just a way for us to see that he cares that much about her. Even if he's doing something in a negative light, it's coming from a place of having a strong connection with this woman and strong feelings towards this woman. Uh, the story ends with them together, like I said, and villain um, Trettenmurth tells Yen she and Geralt were made for each other, but then right after that he says, but nothing will come of it. And she's understanding of this, but she says that she would like to believe there are no limits to possibility. That's actually something I didn't mention in the summary, but a lot of the characters that have lines in this chapter mention something about the limits of possibility. It's a very uh, commonly repeated thing throughout the story. Uh, I'm not going to dive into that though, because I think it's kind of like a, a philosophical thing. And not that I'm saying there's no room for uh, discussing philosophy on this podcast, but this one, um, I don't know. I think I, I think I would just embarrass myself if I try to dive too deep into it. Because <laughs> uh, I, I get what I get what the theme of it is. I just uh, it's, it's just going a little bit too deep, more, more deep than I feel like I, I could do today. <laughs> um, so anyway, even with villain Trettenmurth's words, it looks like Geralt and Yennefer are still going to try to be together, which I'm actually really happy about. Uh, when, what I was just talking about with Geralt having, um, very deep rooted feelings towards her, having, he, he clearly cares for her a lot. I think that that works both ways. I think that the reason Yennefer was so angry at him was because she was incredibly hurt. And you can't be incredibly hurt by somebody leaving you if you don't have extremely strong feelings towards them. So I think that it's great that they're back together. Villain Trentonworth didn't really leave us with a lot of high hopes for the two of them, but I, uh, I, I wanted them to be together again. I mean, he says that they were made for each other, but maybe their personalities might clash. Um, just who they are as people might be problematic, but I still, I, I just, I, I just think they love each other and I want people who love each other to be together. I think that that's, it's just, it's just the nicest way for two people to exist who love each other is to be with one another. <laughs> So another topic that has been relevant in previous stories, which we get a small example of again in this story, is the racism towards people who are not just humans, who are anybody that's different from a regular human. And for the most part, we've heard about that racism being directed towards elves, but we get some insight into racism towards dwarves in this world. So Yarpin, who is a dwarf, he says that when they talk to Gillenstiern, and this is the scene when they're all sitting around the campfire talking, I think this is uh, right at the beginning of the scene. Um, he's talking about the king, King Nidamir's chancellor, advisor, Gillenstiern. They talked to him at first and Gillenstein was basically just, you know, telling them how this was going to go. And they didn't like what he said. And even though 
Yarpin didn't necessarily agree with him. He said that he they just smiled and nodded to the stuff that Gillenstein was saying, um, just out of fear that there would be another pogrom and that or another pogrom would happen in a nearby town. From his wording, I mean, I guess mostly because he says another pogrom, it doesn't seem like this is something that is not common. This seems like this world, or maybe it's just a country. I don't know how geographically specific this sort of thing is, but it's something that dwarves face frequently enough for him to use words like another pogrom. So I wanted to point that out because like I was saying, most of the racism we've heard of and the persecution has been towards elves. But yeah, it's it's just a problem with the humans in this world having an issue towards anybody that's different from them. And that is really crappy, <laughs> obviously. So speaking of Gillenstiern, he says witchers must be doing too well if they're able to cherry pick the work that's offered to them. He seemed to already have drawn this conclusion before meeting Geralt, but Geralt's lack of interest in the dragon, I think, was just a reinforcer. He's he's really not the most credible of individuals. He's pompous, he's arrogant, he's rude, but there must be some basis to this argument. So it kind of contradicts what we were told in the Last Wish book. Um, and what we were told was that there's very little work for witchers. Um, that's because the more they work, the less work is available. And then there's just some people who do not wish monsters to be killed. You know, you've got your Dorgrays, the sorcerer, and we're going to talk about him a little bit more in detail in a little bit here. But, um, you know, you've got people like Dorgray who don't want monsters to be killed at all. Um, you've got your Eldermans who don't want the troll collecting tolls for people for crossing a bridge. They, they don't want him killed because he repairs the bridge himself. Uh, but I think that maybe it might just come down to witchers follow a code. We're meant to learn about this code and principles that witchers and Geralt in particular have. And Gillenstiern is just unreasonably taking umbrage with that fact. I think that might be all it is. And maybe, or maybe I'm discussing this more so than I need to. Maybe I'm overthinking it a little bit. Uh, just I just thought that it was interesting. And and like I said, Gillenstiern is not the most credible. I think that characters that are written the way he was written, being so smug and rude, I think that um, we're not really meant to take everything they say at face value. I think that they're not the most trustworthy of characters. So it could be nonsense, but, uh, and it's, I think it's mainly just a way for us to understand that Geralt doesn't just kill anything. Like he's not going to kill dragons for whatever reason. Um, he probably doesn't kill a lot of more sentient beasts out there. But anyway, just something that I thought was interesting. I pondered over it a little bit and thought that it was worth bringing up. Maybe it will be relevant again in, in an upcoming story or in an upcoming chapter in the following books. So uh, going into the topic of Dorgray, what I wanted to talk about him for, or why I wanted to talk about him was because he reminded me of a character we met in The Lesser Evil in the Last Wish book. 
and that was the wizard Stregobor. So when we met Stregobor, we learned that witchers and mages tend to not get along. Uh, we partly gathered this from when Geralt and Stregobor met in his tower, and Geralt talks about how the wizard had previously convinced the king of Kovir that Geralt should not be rewarded for killing a monster. Um, Geralt was actually almost executed for that. And it's because Stregobor found it morally wrong to kill monsters. When we met Yennefer, we became unsure if this was common among sorcerers or if Stregobor was a particular case. So now from meeting Dorgorai, it's it looks like it's a common thing for mages, um, but just clearly not all mages. So what I'm wondering is maybe there's a group of mages that are like them, or maybe it is just a coincidence that there's really only a couple of mages that are very concerned with conservation and uh, letting everybody live in peace and harmony, even though some of these monsters are killing innocent people. But there's definitely something going on that's causing mages and witchers to not like each other. So it could be that, and then there's just some exceptions to the mages that don't really care about that, like Yennefer. Uh, but it could, there could be something else going on there. But this is something um, I'm going to revisit if it ever comes up again in a, in a future story or chapter. So one of the most interesting characters in this story, I talked about Ike of Denesle, but he pales in comparison to how interesting Bork or Three Jackdaws or villain Trettenmirth is. One of the things I wanted to mention with him, which is, this is just a small detail, but then I'll go into some of the more prominent things after this. But I just thought it was kind of funny that no one noticed that Bork, when we knew him as Bork, and his escorts were missing after the bridge collapsed. I get that there was not really any non-chaotic moments to contemplate this after they disappeared, but I just thought it was funny that nobody ever said anything. And then when they reappeared, nobody really said anything about that either. Like, oh yeah, like you you guys were with us and then the bridge collapsed and then you weren't with us. And um, it's just, I just thought it was kind of funny. Uh, Villain Trettenmirth tells Geralt that Owing to the dragon, dragonling, the baby dragon, um, he shall survive. At the Pensive Dragon, which is the name of the inn that Geralt and Borg and the Zeracanians were eating at and stayed at a couple of days past, um, Geralt claims that mutants cannot survive because they cannot reproduce. And then on the road to find the dragon, Borg tells Geralt everyone has a goal, but Geralt argues he doesn't. Geralt argues he himself doesn't. Villain Trentonmirth tells Geralt at the end of the story that um, he's referring to the dragonling saying that uh, one day Geralt himself will find such a purpose and even those who are different can survive. I think that this might be relevant to the chapter from The Last Wish where we find out that Geralt invoked the law of surprise on a man who immediately after found out that his woman is expecting to have a baby. <laughs> so in the story, A Question of Price, that's where that happens. Geralt invokes the law of surprise 
on Dooney, who is with Pavetta. Pavetta turns out to be pregnant. And at the beginning of that chapter in The Voice of Reason, Geralt is talking to the priestess Iola, and he says that he's never going back to Sintra. Sintra is where A Question of Price took place. And he says that the child would have been born um, around the same time of Yennefer's birthday, so the child would, should, should already be alive and existing. This seems pretty similar to Bork's situation with his dragonling. You know, he's saying, oh, even though... Um, they, they, they talk about how the golden dragons, if they, if they did ever exist back in the end, they say that if the golden dragons did ever exist, then they couldn't survive because they can't reproduce. And he's in villain Tremor says, because of this baby dragon, I can survive. I think that's because this baby dragon is going to be like his ward. So it sounds like what this villain Trentonmirth, who seems to have some clairvoyant clairvoyant abilities, is saying is that Geralt might have a, a situation that is like his own. <laughs> I'm explaining this really poorly. But basically what I'm trying to say is that I think that this could be insinuating that Geralt might actually go back on what he said and collect his child surprise. And then because witchers who are not made anymore uh, are basically becoming extinct, maybe they won't be with this child surprise and Geralt will like survive through this child. He could be referring to anything else. <laughs> uh, it could be me overthinking it as uh, it's, a, it's a common thing for me to do is to overthink things. So it could just be that it could really be nothing that ever comes up again. It could just be giving Geralt hope and giving him a reason to believe that he has a purpose, that he should have goals to work towards since he had just recently said he doesn't. But in time, we will find out one way or the other. <laughs> All right, so last thing that I wanted to talk about before I wrap this up was Witcher signs. Woo! If you've been listening to my past episodes, you know I love me a Witcher sign. So we found out about a new one. Last episode, I talked about how, or actually, maybe that was two episodes back. I'm starting to lose track. Um, yeah, as we rack these episodes up, the the I, I start to lose track even more of what happened when. <laughs> but I did recently talk about how I wasn't sure if we were going to get any new Witcher signs, if maybe we have learned about all the ones that actually exist. But no, we learned about Igni. And that is where fire is produced from Geralt's hands. And he uses that in this story, of course, to burn the ties that were binding Yennefer. And um, he apparently needs to look at where he's directing this fire. Um, otherwise, he, it could be pretty dangerous. He needs to be able to aim. And he's not able to look. I guess his hands are bound behind his back. And he's uh, he burns Yennefer's skin, which sucks. <laughs> That made me kind of queasy as I was reading it. I think it was Dora Gray who passes out when that happens. <laughs> that would probably be me passing out. Somebody's skin getting burnt like that. Uh, but yeah, Yennefer's a, a tough lady. She she was able to take it and um, kick some butt afterwards. But 
Um, yeah, so we got another Witcher sign. Maybe there will be more. Maybe that was the last one we'll learn about, but I'm going to bring up the Witcher signs every time we learn about a new one. Um, even if we're only reading about one that we've already learned about, I'll, I'll probably keep bringing it up because I love them. <laughs> All right, so in conclusion, Geralt seems to still be okay after Iola's vision at the end of The Last Wish, which is good. Uh, I can't imagine that even though this story was chaotic and there was violence and there was a, I think it's, yeah, there was, there was some death. Um, I don't think that this story, the events in the story is what Iola's vision was referring to. If so, I can't imagine that Neneke would have been so sad for Geralt to leave and face what was in that vision. So I, I think whatever happened there is still to come, unfortunately. It would be nice if we could just get that done and over with and uh, not have to worry about something so horrible happening to our boy. But uh, as of right now, he's still okay. So that's good. Uh, Geralt and Yen are now back together, but according to villain Trettenmurth, it's not going to last, but it looks like they're gonna try anyway. However, I'm not 100% sure how we're meant to interpret that. And I'll explain. I think it was on my final read through of this chapter that I read his words and I thought, could he be talking about a baby and not their relationship? So because he's directly addressing Yen here and something that has come up a lot with her is that she cannot have children because that's something she gave up to become a sorceress and she regrets that a lot she really wants to have a baby she really wants to be able to get pregnant i think he could be talking about that maybe he's even kind of talking about both like their relationship nothing will come of it and also a baby nothing will come of it, come of it because both Yennefer and Geralt are sterile. Both of them cannot reproduce. It's just the fact that he says it all kind of within the same breath. Like he says, and he's talking to Yennefer, and that's kind of what makes it confusing. He says, I don't even have to try to read your minds. I can tell by your faces, you two are made for each other. And then right away, he says, nothing will come of it. So, yeah, what is he talking about? It, I think it's their relationship. I actually dug into this a little bit. I looked in some forums to see if anybody else was confused about this. They are. I'm not the only one that was unsure. And some people think that it was one of these two. And some people are just unsure like me. And some people think that it might be like a combination of the two, which is what I'm just gonna chalk it up to. But yeah, it, it's just kind of weird. And maybe it's left to be ambiguous. Maybe we're not really supposed to know so that it can kind of add an element of surprise. I'm not sure. I'm not gonna keep guessing what was going on in the author's mind when he wrote this because 
Um, it's just like why I don't want to get too philosophical because I'm going to embarrass myself. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But it's just something to think about, I guess. All right. If you've listened this far, thank you so much for listening. I am sincerely grateful. And depending on where you are listening to this, just know that these episodes are all available on Spotify, Apple podcast, and on YouTube. And YouTube is where you can watch it. You can listen and you can watch because there is a video component with it, of course. And they are all under the same name, Sam Fiction and Fantasy Fun. So I thank you again and goodbye.